I'll tell you, I've had fourth graders talking to me about anxiety. I've had fifth graders telling me they wanted to die. I've had kindergartners telling me they're living in the trunks of cars. It is happening in our elementary school level. And if we think that mental health or trauma starts at middle school, we're fooling ourselves. That's Representative Lillian Ortiz self, and by now you've guessed that this won't be the most lighthearted capital ideas you've ever heard. I invite you to stick around anyway. You'll be glad you did. Lillian is a counselor in the Everett Public School District, and what she sees in that position every day informs the work she does as a state representative. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, but first, welcome to Capital Ideas. It's the podcast where members of the Majority Democratic Caucus in the Washington State House of Representatives sit down at the Capitol and talk about ideas. Those ideas today are about children, adolescents, parents, teachers, families, in other words, just about all of us. In Olympia, Lillian sits on the Education Committee, on the Human Services and Early Learning Committee, and on the Rules and Transportation Committees as well. We talked in the days leading up to the 2019 legislative session, and this is what we said. Thank you, Representative Lillian Ortiz-Self, for joining us here on Capital Ideas. Thank you very much for having me. I want to see if you can talk about a subject today that might sound kind of odd, but basically the subject is trauma. One of your specialties in the legislature and in your professional life has been working with kids, particularly kids who have a problem of one sort or another that needs to be solved. In the course of that career, you have worked with a lot of kids who have suffered different kinds of trauma, ranging from some things that people might not even regard as being very serious to things that are really heinous. Tell me how you decided this was something that was going to grab your attention personally. Well, you know, Dan, I'm a mental health counselor and a school counselor, so it is my profession. It's what I dedicated my life to. And this is reality. This is what our children and families are facing, so many of them. And so I hear the stories. I walk the journey with them. I try to find them resources. I see where the gaps are. And so when you're involved to the level that I am, you can't help but make it an issue. And so, of course, in Olympia, I want to make sure that our children and families get the services that oftentimes are missing. Is this something that has gotten worse over time, or is this something that maybe just wasn't recognized in the 40s or the 50s or the 60s? You know, I'm not sure. My guess is it's probably a little bit of both. Uh, certainly in my generation, as I was growing up in high school, we didn't have the mass shootings. At least I wasn't aware that we had the mass shootings, right? I'm not sure that we had 40,000 homeless youth in the state of Washington in the 40s. Maybe we did. So maybe it's not having all the information at that time, but it's certainly readily available now, and we know it, and everyone should be aware. And as a legislator, you are agitating to make sure that this is on the front burner. Absolutely. Many times, these children and families are the ones that we don't hear from. They don't have a voice. They don't know where to go. They feel so helpless. And it's incumbent upon us who do know their stories to make sure that we speak up for them. We're looking in now to the 2019-2020 biennium. Looking back at bills that you sponsored during the 2017-18 biennium, there are quite a few that deal with these kinds of issues, everything from a child abuse hotline to trauma-informed child care, as well as things like student suspension, which can be traumatic. I'm not sure how many of these became law during the past biennium and how many you're going to be pursuing in 2019 and 2020, but tell me what you are going to be focusing on in this arena 
in the coming biennium? Sure. I'm going to continue to do work around uh, this area, obviously. Um, I did pass my trauma-informed child care practice bill, and that brought together a whole group of experts to develop a curriculum for best practices for our child care facilities and then to also notify parents of which providers have that kind of training. What's happening is our children in early childhood and preschool, they're being kicked out of preschool at the same rate we were kicking them out of K-12. By the time they come to kindergarten, they've been to six different child care providers. Well, that's pretty traumatizing and pretty uh, upsetting to families. Families lose jobs. Children continue to feel that rejection. And by the time they come into kindergarten, you can imagine they're not really thrilled to, to enter into a new institution. What kind of solutions are contained in this legislation? What I'm hoping to do now this next session is then to look at what were the recommendations from this group, what does the curriculum look like, and how do we take it to the next step? How do we provide it to our providers? How do we sign people up? How do we make sure we develop the notification system for parents? How do we just move it forward through the state now that it's that it's being developed, has been developed. So this could be everything from training for professionals to education and public relations campaigns. Absolutely, absolutely. So along that area of trauma, uh, one of the things that we know is that we'll be looking at this next session at bills that contribute to school safety. Our school climate is something that has been under attack, to say the least. And at best, uh, people are just scared. Parents are scared. Teachers are scared. Children are scared. They're scared that someone's going to come in and take their child because of our immigration laws. They're scared that there's going to be a shooting. They're scared that their children might lose a best friend to suicide. There is a lot going on, and it affects our school building. One of the things that I know is that when I started being a school counselor, I had way more time to build relationship with kids and to be able to help teachers identify children that might get lost in the shuffle. And we've added more and more responsibilities and paperwork and activities to our counselors that it's become really difficult to do that. And we've got to get back to basics. Our children need a point person, which falls on the counselors, to make sure that we're there to build those relationships and identify children that are struggling and helping our teachers identify children that are struggling. So one of the things I want to do is make sure that we're putting elementary school counselors. We've made some changes to our middle school and high school. We need to make sure that we're putting counselors in our elementary school level. We have some districts that have no counselor in elementary, and we have some districts that have ratios of like 1 to 800. You can't have 800 children and actually make an impact, a significant impact, at a time when our parents are looking for resources and help and assistance and at a time when children are as well. I'll tell you, I've had fourth graders talking to me about anxiety. I've had fifth graders telling me they wanted to die. I've had kindergartners telling me they're living in the trunks of cars. It is happening in our elementary school level, and if we think that mental health or trauma starts at middle school, we're fooling ourselves. Where does bullying fit in in terms of traumatizing kids? We talked about school shootings and immigration problems, but bullying is the kind of thing that might fly under the radar for a lot of people, I think, as far as as relating to the term trauma. Yeah. Oh, definitely bullying is a trauma. We know that, and it has led to kids leaving school. It has led to low academic performance. It has led to suicide. Um, It's uh, an area that we have to continue to educate and 
and hold kids accountable for, as well as help kids. We need to be available to them so they, they'll report to us when things like this are happening so that we can make sure we keep them safe. We have an obligation to do that. There's definitely, my, my list was not meant to be exhaustive because there's definitely other areas like kids who are homeless or kids who are in foster care and are moving from home to home. Uh, we have kids uh, in poverty or parents have lost their home or living in a car or doubled up. You know, there's sexual harassment in our schools. We have so many issues and all of them that affect our communities walk in the door into our school system. And as the adults, we need to make sure we're providing a safe place. And it's, it's a, also a place that we can actually link them to services and provide services. How do you respond to the people who say that all of these things are fine, but this is the kind of thing that should be handled by families? And schools should teach people how to read and write and do arithmetic. That kind of criticism of big government or meddling in families and that kind of thing that inevitably will pop up from somewhere. I think we've gotten away from that mentality a lot, thank goodness. You know, it's not about meddling with families. It's about families coming in and begging for help. And oftentimes they don't have access to any other resources or services. The minute they put their child in kindergarten, we're their first stop. The number of calls I get for clothing or for food. We send our schools... uh, A lot of them send food backpacks home on weekends so that children have something to eat over the weekend. We work with organizations to provide clothes and coats and hats for kids who otherwise would be cold in the playground. Here's what I could say is that it stems back to the bill that we passed about providing breakfast for children. Hungry children can't learn. Traumatized children have a hard time learning. Those who are living in cars or from abuse families or on and on and on. It's harder to learn when your basic needs aren't being met. And they walk in our door, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Tell me how you're going to do that in 2019. I have a couple bills that are going to be coming out. Uh, One is I want to make sure that we start to encourage our counselors in our elementary schools, that we increase that. Another one is that we lower the ratio of our counselors in elementary school. One to 800 isn't feasible and isn't effective. I want to make sure that our schools in our Title I schools or our schools in poverty are also getting possibly the additional help that they need to serve their population. Another thing that uh, I think we often forget is that Dealing with all this trauma on a daily basis affects our educators. So we're asking our teachers to go in every day when they themselves are scared that their ch- something might happen to their children in whichever school they have them in, where they themselves are scared that something might happen to them, where they see and hear the trauma of so many children on a daily basis. Now, I'm a mental health counselor, and I've been trained, and I have years of listening to the stories, and it crushes me. But imagine someone who's coming out with a bachelor's degree into the teaching field and has only been teaching for two or three years and is bombarded with all of these stories uh, in a real personal way. You can't help but be affected, and they are. And so there's some studies coming out now regarding secondary traumatic stress for educators because of everything that they're facing and everything they're having to witness. And I think we owe it to ourselves to make sure that our professional development and resources are geared towards making sure that we are helping our educators deal with something that's really real that they might not have dealt with in 1940 but need to deal with now. This is the kind of thing that most people would not 
be conscious of, but it doesn't seem very much different than the kind of stress and trauma experienced by first responders. Because in a way, teachers and counselors are first responders within the framework of a school. Exactly. And, you know, every time they hear a shooting anywhere in the United States, and especially in Snohomish County, where I'm from, where we've had our share, any time they hear of a suicide of a youth, any time, you know, they pick up a suicide note from a child, all of that, they relive it over and over again. How much of this involves money? Everything involves money, I'm convinced, (laughs) Dan, almost. (laughs) Some of it is doesn't in far, as far as uh, prioritizing, you know, like our professional development for our teachers. There's so much we need to teach them. It does involve money to give them the professional development days that they deserve. I see it as an investment. You know, every corporation, every company invests in training their staff and sending them to conferences and providing them the professional training they need, and yet somehow it's like pulling teeth to do it in our education system. But our teachers need to be trained as well, and they need the professional development, and they need to be able to find the support and the resources for themselves as well. So that's that's part of it. I think we also need to uh, provide some training for teachers and students around suicide. That's a huge issue that we're going to need to invest some dollars in to make sure our students are really understand the signs and can help us identify in our teachers because the counselors can't be the only ones that understand this, right? And that does take time away from professional development opportunities when you have to train staff on this. But I think, again, saving one life makes it all worth it. You mentioned foster kids a while ago, Mm -hmm. and I know that they have problems that aren't faced by children, even those in maybe highly dysfunctional families What kind of services do you feel are lacking for foster kids, particularly those who have aged out of foster care? Part of our homeless population, our foster youth that age out at 18, their percentage of being homeless or um, dropping out of school or becoming pregnant, all of those statistics are very high for our foster youth. Because you could imagine a child, because I still consider them a child at 18, with no family and no place to go. We've made some progress in our last session. We had a bill that allows foster children to still stay living with their foster parents that they were with. Good move in the right direction. What I'm really passionate about is how do we save the relationship between that child and their biological parents. So I'm really into making sure that our priority is safety for the child and our second priority is reunification with the family. I think we need to look at how we invest our dollars and how do we move those dollars around to make sure that the biological families are getting the services that they need to turn things around so that they can keep their children because then everybody wins. Then that child will have a, a forever home, if you will. You know, as a mental health counselor, I have worked with so many adolescent youth who tell me, I don't care what my parents did. I want to go home to my parents. That That is something you can't take away from a child is their desire to belong to their family. And I think we owe it to them to do everything we can to try to keep, keep that relationship intact. 
And I'd like to see some of our dollars directed to that. One of the bills that I have coming up this next year is around visitation of families, because when there isn't enough visitation that happens or visitation is so far and few between, you see the bond start to be affected. You see the trauma that the children live through over and over again as they can't see their parents. I wonder if they're okay. I think we could do better in that area, and I'm hoping to pass some legislation to strengthen that. You've got a very full plate before you, and I appreciate the fact that you have stuck with me this long. But before we cut loose, I want to find out if there's any final thoughts that you would like to add. I'd just like to say that when we invest in our children, we have to invest in our families because that child is affected if they have a older brother that can't make it through school and has to drop out of college, that child is affected that walks in our K-12 system. If that child's parents lose their jobs or they're homeless or Aunt Myrtle is can't get health care, that child is affected. And so oftentimes we try to we work in silos and so people try to say, oh well Lillian works with children. Lillian works with every constituent in her community because we're all part of a family. And when you're part of a family, you're affecting every child that walks in that school. So whether it's grandma, on disability, uh, et cetera, et cetera, everything that happens, I hear about. I hear from my children how concerned and upset they are because this is happening to their family. And so when we invest in children, we got to make sure that our policies are also investing in families. And that includes zero to 99. So I am excited to continue to do that in this next session. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Representative Lillian Ortiz-Self. Thank you very much for giving us a few minutes. Thank you. Well, there's another Capital Ideas in the books. If you feel like you benefited from the last few minutes, I hope you'll subscribe to Capital Ideas on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or Stitcher, or wherever you locate your podcasts. This is your state government, and what goes on here affects us all. The more you know about how it works, the better it can work for you. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, and I appreciate you listening.